RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I genuinely believe that the presentation to insurers is one of the most crucial bits of paperwork effectively a law firm can put together every year. I would say this is what I do. But I've always said that the presentation to insurers is like pitching for new work. And you need to treat the profession dental insurance in exactly the same way, in my personal view. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Martin Ellis, and we're going to discuss lawyers' professional indemnity insurance. Martin is a thoroughbred broker. After six years at Alexander Forbes, Martin became a founding shareholder and director of Prime Professions, where he was the managing director of Prime Risk Solutions, the brokers for over 1,000 law firms in the UK and further afield. In 2013, Prime Professions was sold to Willis, where Martin spent a further couple of years. From there to JLT, and then in 2019, Martin became an executive director at Howden. Throughout the whole of his career, he has been involved in the broking of legal risks, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. And uh, what was it? Let's let's go right back to the very beginning. What was it that sort of brought you into insurance in the first place? Well, it was interesting. I've done some work experience at uh, what was known as Sedgwick's back in the early 80s, which has now become the Mighty Marsh. And uh, I spent three weeks following a broker around the Lloyd's Market in the old 1958 building, as it was. And uh, I thought this is fun, uh, mainly drinking coffee. And even at my tender age at the time, you know, having the odd pint. And I thought, hey, this is fun. What a career this could be. You know, so as soon as I had the opportunity, I uh, signed up. And my father, who was a claims underwriter of the Lloyd Syndicate as well, you know, helped me along the way and encouraged me and said, hey, you know, I think this is for you, son. But you're at Howden now. So talk us through your current role. What role do you play at Howden? So there's two or three roles, really. Uh, my fee-earning role, as I describe it, is very much around the larger law firm. So I lead the large law firm team here. And we act for a number of top 100 firms, including two or three of the top 20. And, you know, in addition to that, I then have oversight on a number of the professional indemnity businesses within Howden as well, in terms of the various specialist areas. And we do look after over 1,200 law firms, you know, in the UK. And we look after a number of law firms from around the world as well that come into the London market. So, yeah, exciting times here at Howden. Absolutely. And uh, just to put that into context, sort of 1,200 law firms, there are what roughly ten thousand or so law firms in the UK. Is that about right? I think so. If you look at if you look at the numbers in in England and Wales, there's around ten thousand entities regulated. And I think that what that uh, what that means in terms of law firms itself, it's always difficult to tell because so many firms have different trading entities and legal entities under their banner. So I would suggest anywhere between nine and ten thousand. And um, so I just want to. And reassure listeners that you know, it's not going to be limited to the UK legal market. We are going to, as our sort of conversation progresses, we're going to touch upon kind of global issues as well. But before we do that, I do want to sort of put the UK solicitors PI market in into some sort of context, because you've already alluded to the fact that in the 90s, it was a slightly different market than it is now. 
So, so could you talk us through how the market was in the 1990s and then, and then the change that occurred and, and how the market is now? Yeah, so in the late 80s, I think 87, I think it was, that the, the Law Society of England and Wales created a mutual fund called the Solicitors Indemnity Fund. And that ran all the way till, to the 31st of August 2000. You know, it was quite a momentous day. Um, so we had 12, 13 years of mutuality. Uh, where at the time, I think there was about eight and a half thousand law firms actually insured by the mutual fund, which offered insurance of a million pounds on an any one claim basis for every single firm, whether you were a very small firm or a very large firm. Um, the policy that was effectively the policy that was underwritten by the mutual fund at the time was the, uh, I would suggest, the broadest professional indemnity insurance in terms of coverage that probably known to man, I think we could probably say. Um, and during the mid to late 90s, purely driven by claims activity. And I think that if you look at the property sector, the real estate sector, let's say, that generates generally the majority of the claims against professionals or certainly the legal sector anyway, you know, we saw we were in recessionary times. We, we had real issues in terms of the economy here. We saw a significant number of claims being made against the legal profession. And it was bringing the fund to its knees. You know, it was a real problem. And I remember it intimately that there were firms out there that didn't have any claims at all made against them that were being asked to pay their contribution because it was known as a contribution rather than an insurance premium. Their SIF, SIF contribution was trebling, quadrupling and, and even going tenfold at the time, even for firms without claims issues. For firms with claims issues, one, they still got insurance through the fund because it was a compulsory and a regulatory supported requirement. So it didn't matter how good or bad you were as a firm, you still got insurance, you were still allowed to trade. And it was actually, it seemed to be a flawed system, I think it was fair to say, because I think at one stage, the mutual fund was probably running with potential losses of over 600 million pounds. And the contribution was significantly less than that, that was being made by the profession. So of course, being a mutual fund, the shortfall had to be made up. So, of course, the profession was being asked for cash calls, effectively, you know, so it was a real problem. So you can imagine the legal profession in England and Wales was uh, the temperature was rising all the time. And I think the Law Society was, in some respects, not necessarily forced, but they were persuaded, I would say, by the majority that things needed to change. And so for the best part of a year, 18 months prior to the commercial market kicking in, which was on the 1st of September 2000, I was heavily involved with advising a number of firms and the Law Society actually asked, you know, for some support around this because we needed to educate the whole profession because for years, the profession, whether you're a sole practitioner all the way to a magic circle firm, hadn't purchased primary insurance from the commercial market ever before. So it was breaking new ground, it really was. And, you know, what was incredible, really, that a number of insurers, and we had something to do with encouraging those insurers to come into the market, but those insurers came to the market and effectively reduced the premium pot, if you like, for primary insurance from, I think, the last year of the SIF in 99 was about 260 million, something like that. It was around that number. And the same number of firms was insured by the commercial market for about 163 million. So we took £90 million off of the pot, which, you know, is a significant sum of money. And that's what competition drove. So we're here 20-odd years later, 22 years later. Um, a, how do you feel it's gone? 
Um, and I suppose what ebbs and flows have you seen? Um, I mean, we often talk about hard markets where there's, uh, you know, there's, there's upward pressure on rates and premiums or whatever. And then there's soft markets where there's downward pressure on, on premiums. And well, I mean, what, what, what have you seen over the last 22 years? How's the market ebbed and flowed? So I think there's a few things to, to think about here. Um, I've mentioned a primary layer of insurance quite a bit. I mean, we've seen some changes around that. So, you know, as years have gone by, we've seen the compulsory limit of cover double, for example. So rather than a million, it's two million for a partnership, three million for an incorporated business such as a limited liability partnership. The other things that we need to remember as well, and this is a really important thing, that when the insurance requirements transferred from the fund to a commercial insurance requirement. One of the things that the Law Society of England and Wales now, the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, one thing that they absolutely honed in on, and quite rightly so, it was that the compulsory insurance is there not to protect the firms, and this sounds a bit odd, but it's to protect the clients and consumers of those firms, right? So it's all about consumer protection. And one of the things that we had to introduce as a marketplace back in the year 2000 or something known as the assigned risks pool. And the idea behind this was that any firm or lawyer that was struggling to get insurance, genuinely, their risk was deemed to be so poor that they struggled to get insurance, that if every insurer that signed up to offer the cover said, no, sorry, we're not offering terms at all, then the assigned risk pool was created as effectively a safety blanket for at least a couple of years for those firms to try and trade through. And they were allowed to practice. They were allowed to effectively carry on, if you like. But they had two years to get themselves into good shape and then come out of the assigned risk pool. So it was effectively a safety blanket. And what had happened during the first few years of the commercial market, let's say from 2000 to 2004, 2005, what had happened was that there was a growing number of firms that were struggling to get insurance. I think, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but it was in the kind of early to mid noughties where we ended up with probably four to 500 firms, if not more actually, in the assigned risk pool. So as a percentage, if we're basing it on 10,000 firms, you know, 5% of the profession, which is quite high actually at the end of the day, were deemed uninsurable. I mean, that's quite a thing, isn't it? It's not something you're going to be proud of, you know, and get a certificate that you put up on the wall and say, you know, I'm proud to be one of the uninsurables. The assignment pool was never a place to go even out of idle curiosity, as we used to say. <laughs> and what we saw was that the commercial insurers said, enough's enough. And the SRA, to be fair, listened. You know, they did listen. And there was, I think, a consultation that took place and everyone kind of got it and understood that actually, in many respects, although this wasn't the intention, but by default, the insurer community had become almost another level of regulation, if that's the best way to describe it. And it was by default, not by design, but they were policing the profession in some respects by continuing to support them financially. So new regimes were introduced, you know, so the ARP disappeared. One of the things that we've seen throughout this 22 years now, we've seen insurer capacity reduced generally in the world, following the tragic events of 9-11, for example, where we had a bit of a capacity crunch. We saw a few years later the global financial crisis. So therefore, we saw a significant increase in claims activity against the profession. So again, we saw some toughening of the market. We saw some insurers step back a little bit and say, mm, not for us. We keep a watching brief. 
And then, you know, since then, we've seen what's interesting. We saw a blip, you know, in the market hardening, but then we saw a general softening. And then we got all the way through to a few years ago when Lloyd's of London undertook its thematic review on all classes of insurance. And I think when you looked at professional liability on a worldwide basis, excluding the US, interestingly, so international professional liability, lawyers, so not just England and Wales here, I'm talking about other territories around the world, lawyers featured, I think it was the second worst performing sort of profession behind construction professionals. So, you know, you can imagine the scrutiny, therefore, that any Lloyd syndicate or any insurance company that had any attachments to Lloyd's, you know, suddenly everyone started looking at their numbers again and said, you know, something needs to be corrected. And it coincided, not just the thematic route, but it did coincide with quite a bit of claims activity. We started couching the phrase that we're seeing a frequency of severity which was quite interesting. We used to look at claims and describe it as a severity of claims or a frequency of claims. But what we were seeing, unfortunately, was more and more very large claims being made against the legal profession. Not just England and Welsh lawyers, but around the world as well. So lots of significant claims activity. And of course, so this affected not just the primary layer of insurance, but it affected the excess layers as well, with a lot of larger firms buying big limits, two, three hundred, four hundred million pounds worth of cover um, and more, you know, if, you, if, if they could get it. That there were insurers and saying, well, actually, we used to think writing excess layer insurance was money for old rope, as they say, um, particularly above certain attachment levels, let's say above 10 million. But actually, maybe it's not as profitable as we'd like, you know. So the last three to four years, Probably the single impact across all professional indemnity, but certainly on lawyers, has been rates upward rate adjustment all the way through the programs from for small firms to large firms to firms just buying the compulsory layer of cover, but also those that are buying hundreds of millions of pounds worth of cover as well. So we're in 22 now, you know, whether it continue for the next three or four years, I would hope not. And I'm sure it will plateau. That's hope. And the early signs are that there's a slight softening in attitude. But in general terms, we've seen significant rate increases in the last few years and driven by claims activity. And, and that presumably explains why some firms who have no claims against them and who put in risk ma- management and risk mitigation measures um, and are, are nonetheless seeing their rates increase. It's, you know, it's, it's across the board. Yeah, it is. Um, we are able to differentiate as much as we possibly can. Um, for firms buying big limits of cover, it's quite difficult because you're buying insurer capacity um, it's, and this is a price for their capacity, if you like, if you want that kind of cover. Um, so we used to see years and years and years ago for most firms, a thousand pound sort of minimum premium for every million that they purchased above, let's say, 10 million pounds worth of cover. And that could be four or five or even more now, you know, four or five thousand pound for each minute. It's significantly increased. So. During that 22-year period, most underwriters that have been there since that moment in time have got highly sophisticated assessment processes and underwriting capability than they ever would have done, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And because they've got great data, they've captured huge amounts of data. And so they can, through almost a forensic approach through the underwriting process, really try and differentiate and and almost second guess where the next claims are coming from. So, you know, they've tried to be highly sophisticated and rightly so, you know, with that data, they've been able to do that. 
But um, but yeah, I mean, the majority of the profession, I'm afraid, have faced and will still face for a little bit yet increases in rates because the market hasn't adjusted itself to where it would like to be. What are the consequences for that? Because obviously insurers are limited in how they can change the minimum terms, because as you say, the minimum terms are maximum terms, that there's very little scope for negotiation there. Um, but are insurers doing things on top? I've heard about seeking personal guarantees or something. Is, is, that, is that something which is happening? Are you, are you seeing that at all? Yeah, so in the last couple of years, and it's only been in the last couple of years, to be fair, a few insurers for the smaller firms in particular have been genuinely worried about the financial stability if you like, or financial health of those firms. And one of the issues that the SRA minimum terms, as they're known, one of the issues that we have here is that if a law firm fails financially, let's say, and it folds, and there is no succession to their business, no successor practice, the insurer on record, effectively the last insurer standing for that firm, has to offer six years worth of runoff insurance and of course insurance was sitting there saying well hold on we're just about to enter into a potentially a pandemic a couple of years ago this was really introduced through that and many insurers were sitting there worried that there could be law firm failures and therefore runoff exposure was plain to see and insurers were genuinely concerned that they wouldn't get payment of their runoff premium or indeed payment of any policy excesses that might be due during the six-year period of the runoff. So they were asking partnerships, you know, firms to, to sign personal guarantees on this. I mean, it was guaranteeing the premiums. That's what ultimately they were asking for. My gut feel is that those insurers that have required personal guarantees during this period, some may continue doing it and saying, well, actually, until the SRA agree to amend the minimum terms, you know, in relation to runoff, for example, i.e. the length of period or the fact that the insured firm doesn't even need to pay me my premium <laughs> to get insurance, you know, it seems to be quite a fundamental issue that. Um, but until such time as the regulatory guys change their stance on that, I think there will be some insurers that will continue asking for PGs or personal guarantees, as you say, but some will be happy just to assess the firm during the underwriting process and say, hey, we ask questions about risk management, we ask questions about what you do and how you do it, and we take a view as to whether you're a good risk or a bad risk, and most insurers should be able to take the comfort in that going forward. Not all will, but some, I think, will make that judgment. And we've obviously kind of touched upon a lot of issues, and whilst we've been talking about it in the context of the UK market, the issues around hard markets, soft markets, extend way beyond the borders of, of, of the UK. Um, but are there any particular challenges for uh, the placing of non-UK legal risks? Well, I think we probably need to remind ourselves sort of just of the different regimes around the world, because I think that's quite important, actually. So there's a lot of the more mature jurisdictions around the world for, and have for many, many years had compulsory insurance requirements, very similar to England and Wales. Um, some of them closer to home, like Scotland and Ireland, for example, they have their own regimes, but I know the US has a variety of regimes from state to state, for example. I know that there are similar mutual funds, actually, in the US, East Coast and West Coast. You know, they provide tens of millions of dollars worth of insurance, hundreds of millions, actually, in one case, you know, for 
a lot of the larger firms in the US. Some of that insurance, whether it be top-up insurance or excess layer insurance, or even through reinsurance, comes into the London insurance market or the global insurance market. So don't get me wrong, it still comes back to a traditional insurance in the end, but some of these regimes around the world have different requirements, different compulsory limits, and so on and so forth. Southeast Asia, whether it be Malaysia, Hong Kong, Singapore, these kind of territories as well, they have you know, what's known as master policies rather than mutual funds. Some of them have commercial insurance markets. So there's a lot of different regimes. Australia, it changes from state to state and different firms have different requirements there. So there's lots of different regimes. I think that that's one thing to say. For firms with international offices, for example, you know, what's interesting there, of course, is that they may be headquartered in the UK, but they may have offices around the world. And of course, all of those local offices have local requirements. So therefore, they have to purchase those local insurances before they come into what we describe as the global insurance programs. So there's quite a lot of, I would suggest, interaction between the different regimes and different coverages. And we need to ensure that they're harmonised as much as we possibly can. So nothing falls between the gaps. I mean, London, in terms of the insurance market, you know, has managed to carve out over many, many, many years a significant proportion of the global law firm exposure, if you like, whether it be, as I suggested, directly or through reinsurance. And it may be that firms around the world that want to buy two, three, four hundred million US dollars worth of cover, for example, or Aussie dollars worth of cover, they need to come to London because that's where a lot of the insurer capacity is. Equally, we might be going to the hubs in the Middle East. We might be going to the hubs in Southeast Asia. You know, these are it's a global insurance market now. So what's interesting for me is that without any question at all, the real estate market it generally is the driver for most claims, regardless of whether you're in the UK or in Scotland, Ireland or Australia or Canada or the US, North America or in Europe. You know, real estate is always deemed to be, in terms of general exposures, the most likely area of practice to generate claims. In, in 2020, you wrote an article um, which is on the Howden's website for the moment, um, in which you said that, uh, and I quote, uh, representation and presentation can be the difference between success and failure when renewing your PI insurance, close quotes. Um, what did you mean by that? And uh, kind of what, what, what value does a broker add to the whole PI renewal process? Yeah, I deal with presentation first. I mean, I, I genuinely believe that the presentation to insurers is one of the most crucial bits of paperwork effectively a law firm can put together every year. I would say this, this is what I do. But I've been talking to senior lawyers over the years about this and, and those responsible for their insurance within firms of different firms of different sizes, of course. But I've always said that the presentation to insurers is like pitching for new work. You know, if you get yourself in a position where you've got an opportunity to pitch for a new client and it could pay the firm hundreds of thousands in fees, then you would take it very seriously. You'd, you'd really put out the stops to put your best case forward in terms of win that piece of work or win that client. And I've said that, you know, you need to treat your professional dental insurance in exactly the same way, in my personal view. This isn't just for the larger firms, I would say, but the presentation needs to be professional looking. It needs to be well thought through. You know, if you've had claims, please tell us about them. Don't just 
have a few numbers on a bit of paper that just, oh yeah, that million pound claim, oh yeah, that was a few years ago. Can't remember what happened. So, you know, presentation to the market is all important. Building relationships with insurers is all important as well. I mean, we've said for some time that most professional indemnity premiums, probably the third single largest overhead that a firm has behind its people costs, you know, its resources, and it's probably its real estate, depending on what offices are, how flash they are. But that's the reality of it. You know, you're talking about a significant sum of money and you need to be with the right insurers. You know, you need to be doing everything you possibly can. You know, insist, if you can, to meet the underwriters. Put your case forward to them on a face-to-face if you can. Well, certainly during the last couple of years during Teams and Zoom, I mean, I've been on hundreds of calls with clients, with their underwriters, where they're presenting the firm to them and making sure that the insurer truly understands what they've done about risk management, what strategy they have, where they're headed as a business, how they deal and mitigate, as you said earlier, against certain risks and exposures. And of course, what kind of things have we had in the last couple of years that has been highlighted? Things like cyber because of working from home and remote working, the cyber exposures, technology risks. These are all new risks that insurers had their eye on, but have been magnified during the past couple of years or so and will continue to going forward, I assure you. So therefore, if we need to, let's get the head of IT on the call. You know, let's talk about all of those firewalls. You know, insurers need to know that everything's robust within the firm. Now, not every firm gets that airtime with insurance. You know, the larger firms tend to. Not every firm does, but the smaller firms can still get their messages across, their positive messages about how they manage risk in written form. It doesn't have to be war and peace, but it needs to be put in an articulated way that insurers can say, yep, that firm clearly gets it. That firm clearly understands what it needs to do about managing its risks. And so that presentation is absolutely crucial. It really is. But we've had application forms with handwritten notes down the side that haven't been deleted saying stupid question. Well, if you're an insurer, what do you think they're going to do? Give you a fantastic premium or are they going to say, no, thanks, next? It raises a smile, but it's important, you know, because now's not the time to challenge insurers. The reason why they're asking the questions is because they've had issues and had claims, for example, or they're aware of issues coming. So therefore, they ask these questions for a reason. So but what we have seen is a significant increase in the number of questions from insurers over the last two or three years in a number of different areas. And of course, we are asking for information, a huge amount of data from firms, some of which just isn't readily available. So of course, that representation piece are coming onto that. The brokers that are dealing with this class of insurance day in, day out, all year round and have been for a number of years are engaged with insurers all the time not just at renewal time, not just when the renewal seasons effectively kick in. All year round, we're talking to insurers. So we know the issues they're concerned about. We understand the reason why they're asking these questions. So, I mean, one of the things that I've found over the years is having great data and being able to offer some really meaningful benchmarking to firms is crucial. Because how do I know what good looks like unless I've got some comparables? You know, it's really important to be able to work out that those are the right kind of premiums for that kind of firm, because otherwise you're driven solely by the underwriters, the insurers. And I think brokers need to be very proactive in that negotiation process and set the tone of the negotiation rather than just be driven by underwriters. And you can't do that unless you've got insight 
and you're well informed. And if you're a well informed broker, as I say, we we use this a lot. We know what good looks like. We equally know what really bad looks like. So knowing what good looks like, that representation piece is hugely important. And I don't think, you know, we are not awash with hundreds of brokers that actually know what good looks like, frankly. I and some of my peer group have been dealing with such a long time now that, you know, you get a good feel for what you're dealing with and you get a good feel for the right kind of pricing and whether improvements can be made year in, year out. And that's the goal. Brilliant. And and finally, Martin, you must have picked up lots of pearls of wisdom over the years. But if if someone came to you and was asking, you know, shall I become a broker? But what word of wisdom would you give to them? I think there's two things, really. I mean, one, uh, specialising, I think, is really important. I think that, you know, it's it's very important to, once you start a career in insurance, and I was giving some advice the other day to someone that try and specialise if you can and really take a real interest in the sector that you're specialising in. You know, get under the skin of it, actually try and understand it, um, research it and really engage with that industry sector if you can. And the other thing is about building a network through communication. I mean, I think the insurance community is amazing. Both, you know, even our competitors are amazing. Lots of friends and all the rest of it. But the insurer community, not just in London and the UK, but around the world, you know, we are a community and you can learn from each other and building that network through communicating and putting yourself out there in that respect is, in my opinion, worth its weight in gold. Thank you, Martin. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts. Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.